Hello, Bookstew viewers. I have a pretty big treat for you today. I have an author who is not only here with me, but has also been with Stephen Colbert, which is really a first for me. His name is Andrew Basevich, and I met him at an art show that was put on in Gloucester um, that involved all sculptures and paintings and works done by combat veterans. And uh, this is something that I assume Andrew was very interested in because he's an ex-military person, a retired colonel, and also I think extremely supportive of veterans' causes. But the reason I invited him to uh, be with us today wasn't really because of his military background or the fact that he uh, teaches it, taught at BU, but more that he's a writer and a very prolific writer, and not only a writer, but an editor. And the book that I'm holding in front of you is probably his best known book, though he's written quite a few more. So Andrew, welcome to Book Stew. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's my pleasure. And I guess let's start with your uh, being at West Point. Did that help you become a good writer? I assume that the classes were, that you took were very rigorous. Uh, they were, although the curriculum back in those days uh, heavily emphasized uh, science and engineering and uh, didn't put a lot of emphasis on things like literature and history. I've long since come to the conclusion that the uh, I began to learn to write in high school. Uh, I attended a boys boarding school, a Benedictine uh, monastery school in Illinois uh, back in the 1960s and uh, we didn't have a lot of frills, uh, but the monks who taught us were themselves um, very good teachers, well-educated, and I think that's where I began to at least pay some amount of attention to the craft of writing. West Point uh, was not particularly helpful. So did you start writing when you were in high school? And it must have been somewhat of a... a, li a Catholic liberal arts education, let's say, is that the right way to, to describe it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think they called it uh, Catholic college prep. I mean, the expectation was that we were all going to go to uh, college. Uh, and, and I would emphasize the, the Catholic dimension. Uh, you know, that was uh, uh, very much an important part of the, of the curriculum. Uh, I, did, I did begin to dabble in writing, uh, like probably half the 16-year-old boys on the planet, and I, I, I imagined that I could write poetry. I sort of fancied I was going to be a, a successor to Carl Sandburg. Uh, wasn't any good at it, uh, but 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 yeah, that's when I began to at least fiddle around with the notion that uh, writing could perhaps someday be uh, a part of my life. Andrew, I found that all the writers I've had on the show have been readers without exception. Um, are you, were you a reader when you were younger? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and again, probably not unlike most other uh, young men in, in those days, I was drawn to fiction, uh, American fiction, 20th century American fiction. So uh, I fell in love with uh, Hemingway, uh, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, not sure I quite understood it, but I thought he was a great writer. <laughs> Uh, my particular favorite was uh, James T. Farrell. Uh, I had grown up around Chicago uh, as a Catholic. Uh, that was the milieu that uh, James T. Farrell wrote about. For example, his famous 
a trilogy, uh, uh, the, the Studs Lonergan trilogy, and I devoured those books. Uh, I have to say today, uh, I don't read all that much fiction, and, and uh, I kind of regret that, but uh, maybe, maybe I can correct that. Uh, well, in the you just said you came back from vacation. To me, a hammock and, and a good chunky book of fiction is, is just about an ideal vacation. But um, okay, let's, so let's move on to the writing part. When you were in the military, and in Vietnam specifically, and then afterwards, was it in your head that you had, at some point, you were going to have to write what you saw, what you felt, what you thought of the strategy and, and the Vietnam War? Uh, no. Uh, when I came back from Vietnam, um, and that, that's when I really began to get interested in history, um, the origins of the Vietnam War became a preoccupation for a period of time. And also as a young uh, aspiring military professional, uh, I wanted somehow to contribute to uh, the intellectual development of my profession. And it was then that I began to write articles for service uh, journals. And really that's where I, in a sense, cut my eye teeth on uh, essays that actually paid a small amount of money, so I found that uh, uh, terrific. Uh, none of them are today of any consequence whatsoever, <laughs> but, I, but I did begin to think that this is something that I could do and that, uh, that needed to be a part of my, my life. Uh, I even wrote a couple of books when I was still uh, in the Army, again, of no significance whatsoever, although at the time they uh, were achievements of great personal satisfaction. And then, okay, so then it, at some point you switched, you, your military career was over. Did you think then about going into writing and teaching? And did you become a historian before you became a professor? Well, I had, uh, the Army had sent me to graduate school to study history. And so I got my uh, PhD at Princeton while I was still on active duty. I didn't really, at the time, um, think that I would become a professional historian. It was just uh, something, I, a degree I wanted to get just for personal satisfaction. When I got out of the Army, however, and at this point I'm married, we got four kids, there's bills to pay, and I needed to find uh, work to do that would both uh, enable me to support my family and also ideally uh, provide a source of satisfaction. So wasn't as a result of any grand plan, but I was able to find uh, my way into academic life, uh, initially down in Washington, but more importantly, uh, beginning in 1998 at Boston University. And the bonus of becoming a full-time academic, uh, particularly at a research university like BU, is that I was expected to write uh, I was expected to produce scholarly works, uh, which I think I tried to do, uh, but it was, it, it, I was also drawn to the possibility of trying to write for a broader audience and to participate in some of the issues of the day that seemed important to me. Uh, and those tended to revolve around uh, the post-Cold War direction of 
U.S. foreign policy, U.S. military policy, uh, and civil-military relations. And and yet I do see, you know, as I Google you and uh, do my own research into your background, I find a lot of uh, interest in philosophy, and especially in um, Reinhold Niebuhr. I hope I said it correctly. You wrote um, an introduction to one of his books and actually kind of brought, resurrected it from the dead, a book that had been written in 1952. So not only are you writing your own books and you know some books I assume that are used as textbooks, some that are more, as you say, for a more general audience, but this kind of um, branch off, which may not be a branch off after all, was really fascinating to me. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, again, I wouldn't want to suggest that this was uh, part of some grand, grand plan, but I, I think as I transitioned from the Army into uh, civilian academic life, uh, I guess I confronted the question, well, where do I stand and, and, and what do I believe? Uh, and, and I started to cast about uh, for earlier writers uh, who, who who could help me come to an answer to that question. And Reinhold Niebuhr uh, was uh, one of those writers, uh, somebody who uh, has influ influenced me uh, tremendously, but he wasn't the only one. It was, uh, you know, uh, 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 C. Wright Mills, uh, uh, Charles Beard, William Appleman Williams, and a variety of others, um, people that I discovered fairly late in my life, uh, but who had said things in print that resonated with me and seemed to provide insights that were directly applicable uh, to the predicaments that we were facing in this post-Cold War era. Did you also um, teach many, many classes and sections at BU? Yeah, I mean, the teaching uh, load at BU, uh, as at most other research universities, was basically two courses each semester. That, that's what I uh, did, a mix of undergraduates and, and graduate students. Uh, I enjoyed the undergraduates uh, more, I think, than the graduate students because they didn't know much. <laughs> so they were the unmolded clay as opposed well, to the semi-molded clay. I mean, there were the there were the vessels that weren't quite empty, were close to empty. You know, it wasn't that I fancied that I was molding, but I was. I hoped that I was providing them with some knowledge that would uh, contribute to their own uh, personal development, their own intellectual growth. So I don't think I was a great teacher. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, one of the things about uh, one of the great gifts of academic life is that. Uh, you actually have quite a bit of time on your own to do your own work. You know, summers uh, were, we didn't have classes in the summertime, and uh, even when classes are in session, if you were efficient about it, you could carve out a certain amount of time to, uh, to, to do your own work. So I was working on uh, books, uh, but I also uh, made an effort to try to write shorter pieces for broader audiences, you know, book reviews and op-eds and that kind of a thing. Uh, I don't know that any of that made any significant impact, but um, those were challenges that I enjoyed. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed 
trying to become a better writer, trying to to be able to fashion uh, an argument that was persuasive, that would be expressed concisely, perhaps with a certain amount of style and wit. Again, I'm not one to judge how successful I, I was, but but that became important to me. And even though I no longer teach because I retired from BU, I, that's still how I spend my days, working on books, working on essays, working on reviews. And it's been a source of great satisfaction. Well, um, you do always have always described yourself as a conservative. But I did, in my research, I did find one article that you wrote in a journal called the New Left Journal. Um, have your political views shifted a great deal? I was thinking about um, the difference between and, and all the, the commander in chiefs we've been through since you've been alive. And uh, you're speaking about in breach of trust, especially the difference between civilian soldiers, um, which would be uh, who was called up in World War II, who was drafted for Vietnam, and the army that we have now. But your consistent theme in breach of trust would seem to be just the inevitability of war, how we never seem to be able to get out of the big muddy, as, uh, as they sang to, to Lyndon Johnson. Do you, do you feel that, that anything has changed or improved? Well, um, you know, although I, I do call myself a conservative, I think the first point to make is that I view myself as a nonpartisan conservative, I hope a principled conservative, but I have great respect uh, for people on the left, for progressives. I, I did, I've written a couple times for the New Left Review, I published uh, in The Nation magazine uh, and other uh, left-leaning or progressive uh, publications, and I, I, it, it gives me a kick uh, to appear in those kind of publications. But I, I'm, I, I, I push back against the notion uh, that we should be identified or should identify others with some kind of a simplistic label that we, we stick on, on, on people's foreheads it's, that says they're either a right winger or they're a left winger. It seems to me that truth lies in the middle or truth lies in some sort of a combination of, of the views that, that, that are common to the left. Uh, and, and, and common to the right. And I think your, your question about war, and particularly about uh, more, more specifically civil-military relations, is a good example of an issue where left-right differences are, are artificial, phony even, uh, and that they, a, a left-right conversation uh, on these matters, on why it is that we find ourselves more or less permanently at war. Believe me, it's not simply the fault of the right uh, that that is the case. And we also need a conversation about the relationship between ourselves and and soldiers, the military, which I think it reeks with uh, dishonesty and, and, and fraudulence. So a lot of my writing, not, not all of it by any means, a lot of my writing has attempted to get at some of those uh, issues. 
I really like the fact that you describe yourself as nonpartisan. I've really never heard anybody use that self-descriptor before, and I really like it. I almost wish I could share it. I can't. But um, isn't that a hard stance to take? No, it's not for me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I guess here in Massachusetts, we call it unenrolled or not enrolled. But in <laughs> fact, I'm an independent. Uh, I don't, I'm not in any way affiliated with uh, either party. I don't think I'm alone in that. If I'm not mistaken, on a, on a national basis, roughly a third of the electorate these days uh, considers themselves independents. The number of people who are willing to stand up and say, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat, I think actually has been uh, dwindling uh, over time. Right. I get, I understand that. And I guess I was thinking of partisan as not as being a Democrat or a Republican because I'm also unenrolled, but more ideologically, I fall very, very much on one side. And, you know, my viewers know, and it's no secret. So, um, well, I mean, I'm, I would be the last person in the world to uh, to question your your views, but from my point of view, uh, if we think about issues related to foreign policy, uh, if we think about issues related to social justice, if we think about issues related to uh, morality, uh, I think there there is wisdom on the left and there is wisdom on the right. Uh, and again, simply from my point of view, uh, to insist that all the all all the all the wisdom is on one side and that the other people are the enemy, I don't think that gets us very far. Well, you're. I have to say, you're a much better man than I, Gunga Din, because um, I I tend to hit one side particularly. But speaking of sides, I'm going to ask you if you ever um, at BU knew worked with met Howard Zinn. I met him uh, once, actually. He, he'd already left BU by the time I got there. He'd retired. Uh, we appeared on a television program together once. Uh, that was actually the only time that I was able to uh, meet him. But he was a very impressive guy and uh, certainly very distinguished and influential uh, scholar. I kind of regret that, that I wasn't able to get to know him better. It's, it's funny. I feel silly asking you because in a way it's like saying, Oh, you were in the army, Andrew. Do you know my uncle? He was in the army. I mean, BU is a very big place. But I think um, there's a certain amount of intelligence and intellectual courage that you both share. So, uh, you know, I was hoping that you would have gravitated together. You know, you cut out a little bit. I didn't hear your uncle's name. Oh, so <laughs> actually my father was in the Navy, so I'm not even going to mention that. Um, I, there were a couple more questions I wanted to ask you quickly. Um, one was uh, actually in breach of trust in the very opening, uh, in the prologue, you mentioned a patriotic occurrence at Fenway Park with uh, flyovers, uh, jets, and everything. And it was very evocative. Um, and what it really put me in mind of uh, was an, a book of fiction called Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk by Ben Fountain. It was also made into a kind of crappy movie. Did you ever, did you, did you read the book? Absolutely, a great book, totally a great book. Uh, matter of fact, he's got a new book coming out called uh, Beautiful Country Born Again, uh, which is a collection of his essays that he wrote during 2016 covering politics. It's nonfiction. 
uh, that I, I I'm going to review for somebody. Uh, but but Billy Flynn's long halftime walk was fabulous. I didn't see the movie. Oh, the no it was awful. <laughs> the novel was both, uh, uh, I think, quite moving and also hysterically funny. I think uh, he caught um, that age so perfectly um, that, you know, absolutely. 19, 20 year old, just kind of like a new hatch chick, but being besieged from all sides by yeah, ridiculousness. He, he, also, he, he also caught the, the predicament of soldiers who are being used and manipulated uh, for for nefarious purposes, to put it to put it quite bluntly, and I thought it was just simply a brilliant piece of work. I do too. Now I have one more question for you about your upcoming book. You have um, the the very intriguingly named Twilight of the American Century coming out in November. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a actually it's a collection of my aunt's nine eleven. Not, not not everything, just a selection. And uh, I was flattered when Notre Dame Press came and asked me if they if, if they could if I would put something together for them, and I did. So uh, it it covers much of what we have been talking about. It, there are essays about uh, some of these writers and intellectuals that have influenced me. Some some that I uh, loathe uh, as well. Uh, it also uh, spells out some of my concerns about the misuse of American military power, about uh, the fraudulence of, of American civil military relations. So uh, I hope people will take a look at it. And, and in a way, in, in one volume, it kind of is a survey of, of things that I have been thinking about and, and writing about over roughly the past 20 years. Do you have, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it'll be kind of a summing up, not that I want to think that your career is going to be over, but do you have another big book like Breach of Trust in you? Well, it's not going to be big in terms of length, but uh, it's it, big, I guess, in terms of breadth. But I, I'm working on a book that basically is going to try to answer the question how we got Trump. Uh, and uh, the, the sort of the one line, I guess, explanation is we got Trump because when the Cold War ended, bought into a bunch of really stupid ideas uh, that that didn't didn't play out well that that ended up hurting a lot of people leaving a lot of people out and when 2016 rolled around uh, those people in their disgust in their disgust for the establishment elected somebody president who's utterly totally and completely unqualified uh, for the position um, so that's the argument I'm going to try to make in this in this project that's going on now I, uh, I sense that your argument will find a lot of support, especially since we are actually taping this the day after uh, Trump's return from right. Helsinki. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I want to really thank you for joining me on Book Stew. I'm looking forward to reading some more of your books. And um, I think uh, you must be a very happy man to have been able to combine um, your love of history, your knowledge of the military, and your ability to write so well that I just wanted to show you. These are all my pink stickies <laughs> and how impressed I was with so much of what you said in Breach of Trust, and that's only one book. So thank, thank you again, Andrew Basevich, for being with us today on Book Stew. Thanks a lot.
And viewers, I have to confess that um, Andrew is the guest who made me uh, actually a little bit intimidated. And I was talking to my mother and I said, I'm having a guest on who uh, just is, is so smart that he scares me. And my mother said, you've never been intimidated by anybody in your life, go get him. So I hope you feel that I did and I hope you thought it was an enjoyable and uh, really uh, good conversation for half an hour. Thanks and have a good night.